Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host. And today I'm very pleased to have on the program two analysts who I know personally, full disclosure, like a proper journalist. I have Vanessa Sinclair and Manya Steinkohler. And we're going to be discussing their book on psychoanalysis and violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives. It's Routledge and it was published in... When, guys, when was it published? In 2018. 18, okay. <laughs> okay, 2018. So it's it's quite contemporary and contemporary on very many levels, as I'm sure in our conversation will be. It says published 2019. Yeah, the, the paperback is 2019 and the hardback was November 2018. So it's even more contemporary. Even more contemporary. <laughs> well, I just have the paperback here, so I'm, I'm hot off the presses. Um, let me give a little introduction to um, these two and just... From my my knowing them, they're completely movers and shakers, and you'll see as I talk about their um, their biographies as briefly as I can. Um, Vanessa is a psychoanalyst um, based in New York City and Stockholm, um, author of Switching Mirrors, um, which is uh, Trap Art Press, 2016, and co-editor of The Ferris Wolf, Volume Nine, also Trap Art, with Carl. Uh, how, let me get his last name right, Abramson. Okay, great. Um, she recently edited a collection, Psychoanalytic Writing, Poetry, entitled Rendering Unconscious, also Trap Art. And she hosts a podcast of the same name, addressing the state of psychoanalysis and mental health care today, current events, culture, arts. She has an upcoming book, uh, Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut in Creation, um, also by Routledge, 2019. Um, Oh, and it's edited by George Hagman. I know George. Okay. And Vanessa is a founding member of Dasu and Bahagan, a free association for psychoanalysis, which is a place where we all met. Um, she organizes events, a lot of events and conferences internationally. Um, and she, with Manya, organized the conference that I think motivated um, from which this book stems on violence and psychoanalysis, civilization and its bliss contents, which was um, in New York in 2015. Um, next is Manya Steinkohler, who is a practicing psychoanalyst here in Fairgotham, and she also teaches at um, the Borough of Manhattan Community College, City University of New York. She's co-edited with Patricia Garavici, Lacan on Madness, Madness, Yes, You Can't, which is Rutledge 2015, Lacan, Psychoanalysis and Comedy, Cambridge University Press 2016, and she has a book forthcoming which sounds really great, Um, Psychoanalysis, Gender, and Sexuality, also uh, Cambridge University Press. She's an editor of Division Review and La Clinique Lacanienne, which is uh, out of Paris. She's completed a manuscript, The Uncoming Community, Trauma, and the Cinema of War with Jessica. It was published. Oh, it was published? Okay, great. With with, uh, Professor Jessica Datsuma, yes? How do we say her name? Yeah, and she's... um, written a lot, a lot, a lot. And she also works um, in creating conferences uh, herself um, with Michael Garfinkel. Um, and they've done two conferences in uh, Reykjavik, um, Psychoanalysis on Ice. So <laughs> and we have a next one. It's called Next, When, when the Ice Melts in Slovenia. Oh, 
next year. Okay, great. <laughs> Which is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> when the ice melts. Um, okay, so first question that we always ask here at New Books and Psychoanalysis is what, to the degree you can understand your motivations, motivated you both to create this conference and then to create this book? I guess it's both of them, right? Uh, sure. Well, for me, I was working for a city hospital in New York uh, for several years and having a really rough time there with the way that my patients were being treated. Just the system of medical and mental health care in the United States is so atrocious, basically. Um, and I'd actually had a patient that passed away. Actually, I worked in an HIV clinic and I had a patient pass away probably every month and there was never any inquiry into what was going on. It was just kind of seen as normal, uh, which was also disturbing. But I had a specific patient pass away that was really um, bothering me. And I had met Manya quite recently and talked to her about it. And she had been trained in France and had such a different experience of of um, mental health care than what I had been used to, that it was just like extraordinary to me. So um, I think it was the APW, the Associated Psychoanalytic Workgroups Conference was coming up, I think in 2012. And we were on a panel together talking about kind of the differences in systemic uh, mental health care in the US. I was talking about that versus uh, in France, which Rania spoke about. And then, you know, Nothing changed as far as the problems with the systemic violence and racism inherent in America. So then we decided to have a conference all about uh, violence um, in 2015. Oh, I just lost you. Hello? Manya, do you want to? Sorry, I'm back. Okay. Where did you go? I don't know. I lost the sound for a minute. (laughs) Oh, okay. Welcome back. Uh, I mean, I'll add to that, right? Vanessa, are you done? Yeah? Yeah. um, Two things. One, uh, what, what's, what kind of moved me at the beginning of this was that uh, one of my dearest friends from many, many years lives in Newtown, Connecticut, and uh, teaches in the high school where the uh, of that uh, of that like system where the shooting took place. And uh, her kids are kids I knew when they were born. I mean, I knew them my whole life. So when that 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 story happened, and uh, that was very kind of affected me personally in terms of my friendship and my hearing about that, that, that shooting like every day. So that was one, one part that kind of, that made me want to research that and work on it. And also when I did work in France, um, it was so different than my experience. For example, I uh, worked with a lawyer and had to work a little bit in Bellevue and it was so completely different than what I had experienced working under Guidana, whose essays in this book in, in France. So like, for example, we had, as a, just an example, we had a patient who um, they had followed like patients. It's a different relation to psychotic patients. They are in the hospital and out of the hospital, they stay with families. It's, it's, quite different there. Uh, they rarely lock doors, but he, he would set fire. This is a good example of a difference that he would set fire to the, um, he started setting fire to the hospital. And of course you can't do that. It's not a good idea. So, and he had done it several times. And rather than, of course, the, the, you know, the, the fire department would come and blah. And you know, how did he get access to matches? Blah, blah, blah. And the head of the hospital, Gidana, we said, well, you know, we've known this guy for 17 years. If he's setting fire to the hospital now, something must have happened. We have to figure out what happened that started this problem. And we found that, in fact, two of the nurses who don't like the way he lives, he, he's very dirty and, you know, he, he, he hoards and stuff, went to his house. And because they were angry because they had to v- visit him and they, check up on him every week when he wasn't home, cleaned his whole house. 
So in a sense, he felt that they set fire to his his house, so he set fire to the hospital. And as soon as he had the nurses apologize, the problem stopped. And I thought how that would have been dealt with so utterly differently in the United States. <laughs> Right, to say the least, yeah. right? Like, right. Off, to, off to Creedmoor with you, goodbye. <laughs> right, right. So I, yeah. I just thought like the, the, the primacy of the idea of, uh, of clinic, of the unconscious, um, that that's was one thing. And I guess the second thing was that Gidana's idea that an institution is a sick place by definition, <laughs> and that there's no, as soon as you have an institution working, it, insofar as it's working, it is sick. And that the only way to work on systemic violence in the institution is to constantly be changing the institution so that comfort of the institution is never fully established. And so that, that's why he had so many people from out of, out of France who were not even analysts or whatever. It was to kind of change that up. So that, those things kind of went into our, our, our making this conference and then eventually the book. Mm-hmm. So an inherent, he had an inherent acceptance of the fact that like, groups are inherently destructive. He doesn't did not he doesn't defend against that as a fact, um, and works with it. Unlike here, where I, there does not appear to me to be much awareness of sort of how um, how destructiveness is is just a part of who we are, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the people in this book, how did they? I mean, so they gave papers at the conference or, and, you know, we can go the Judith Butler's in the book, Todd McGowan, who I've interviewed before. Manya has a, a terrific, really brilliant essay, I think, um, which she's already referenced. Um, Guy Dana is in the book. Um, uh, Genevieve Morel. These are people who I've sort of seen elsewhere. Then there were, new, there were names I didn't know. Um, uh, Tahiri, Foray. There were other people who, how did these people all end up in this book? These different writers and thinkers and analysts? Vanessa, you want to, well, well, some of them are people we know who've worked on certain issues. For example, Patrick Landman um, is right. The, 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 the card carrying anti DSM person in France, right? He, he, he does that. And so any, and he thinks about, we're thinking about systemic violence and even diagnosis as a, as problematic and, and violent in some way being stamped with a, a, a meaning that you then have to bear. Right. He, we thought he, he would be a good contributor. So some of them were like, well, who do we know who's interested in this or have written on this and would be, um, would be interested in, in working on it. Uh, Martin Fouré works with, um, uh, psychotic children, um, and often, often kind of children with some criminal problems too. And she's had a long history of working with those kinds of kids. So that we thought that was interesting. Some of them, um, because of like, so because of their, their, you know, their, their other work that we invited them or were interested in and see if they wanted to contribute. Vanessa, you want to add to that? Yeah. And the conference itself, um, you know, of course, had a lot more people and was more open to more literary pursuits and that sort of thing. People talking about literature and film and those sorts of things. Um, Whereas for the book, I mean, this we decided to do kind of after 2016. Um, And so we seem to be even more in a state of crisis than we were when we did the conference. Um, And so uh, we wanted to have the issues be really pertinent, like clinically and societally and be kind of issues that were really uh, important and ongoing right now in like the public discourse and the clinical discourse in society. You, you both, 
Oh, go ahead. We, we just, I have one more thing, but I think that we also wanted, I mean, I, I also, both of us wanted to show that they're like, it's, it's like contemporary Lacanian perspectives and they're very different. They have like so radically different. You'd be like, oh my God, this is Lacanian. Kind of also, and like maybe speaking to um, maybe a, a popular understanding, maybe uh, or misunderstanding of Lacanian clinic and, and theory to kind of like really show a, a real diversity, even, you know, and, uh, and, and, and also a strong clinical component of Lacanian work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there seems to be, I mean, I sense a tension in the book because, because not tension, but I, the diverse uh, thinking about the question, why violence? You know, so we have Todd McGowan seems to argue that violence is an attempt to bring the sublime back to life. Right. Manya, I think you have a, a sentence saying something. It's an attempt to construct an ego. I thought that was an interesting statement. Foray suggests it's a response to not being heard via uh, Lachman. Um, Donna says that there's a violence that is not aroused by need or lack. And I, I was like, wow, these are really um, not the same. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's not there's a shared terrain, but certainly quite different ways into the question of why violence. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that that was, I mean, I learned a lot. I'm not being, you know, Lacanian. I'm always trying to like, you know, catch up with some, some aspects of the language and, and the thinking. And I was more confused about Lacanian thinking at the end of reading this book because of the diverse, uh, the diverse uh, thoughts. Maybe there was one uh, when in Moskowitz's article he he talks a little bit about the idea that that um, violence and Pidana does as well that there's a violence of shutting down the unconscious like violence in a way would be shutting down the unconscious and in a way our book or the the diversity of the book and the breadth and the tensions in the book was kind of addressing that and saying well, discussing it or bringing these scholars to people and analysts together to talk about it was a kind of let's say an, a, a way of handling that or, or of trying to think about it to mm-hmm. kind of open up the space. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, and they, I think all the contributors do a really good job at, like Manya said, opening up space, opening up dialogue. I think in Gidana's uh, piece specifically, he talks about that violence happens when the space for associations is kind of closed down or foreclosed. And so does Stephanie Swales and, and Carol Owens and how there's not room for ambivalence. There's not room uh, for speech um, that's not politically correct and these sorts of things in the discourse, which just leads to more violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, I just finished teaching, or actually, I haven't finished yet. <laughs> that was a wish. I'm teaching one more uh, class next week in a called narcissism and aggression at CMPS. So I've been steeped in this topic and, um, you know, of violence, of, of destructive uh, aggressivity. And I found myself wondering, and I don't know if either of you think about this sort of thing, but um, the relationship um, that Lacanians draw between uh, narcissism and aggressiveness. Um, I taught Lacan's on, uh, what is it, on aggression, on mm-hmm. aggressiveness. Um, I was really, I was uh, very interested in you know, what are the sort of places of overlap between modern analytic thinking about psychosis and aggressiveness and Lacanians. And I wanted to see, could you talk about that a little bit, about the relationship between the two? 
between modern psychoanalysis and uh, no, 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 no. Between uh, Lacanian thinking on the relationship between narcissism and aggression, it, we could we could almost say that narcissism is is innately aggressive because it 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 it, it, it it's kind of the mm-hmm. subtending the imaginary order, right? And the imaginary order wants to kind of close out something else or foreclose something potentially something symbolic. Right, that destroys it or uh, tra- or traverses it. So, in a way, uh, you know, the the, uh, the and we could almost say that narcissism is like duped by the ego itself. Does that makes sense. I mean, this is, we we could talk about this forever. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that just reminds. I think that it reminds me too of. Um, I think it was Martin Ferre talks about then and then the function of the father, the function of the law coming in to kind of um, help not only create the space so that subjects can come into being, but also that it's a way for the child to do so um, and to manage the space away from the mother's desire. Right, right. I mean, that's that's an argument that seemed to be sort of coursing throughout the book, this sort of... Um, a loss of the father, quote unquote, the father, the loss of the paternal, the, the weakening of paternal law. Um, and I found myself asking, well, so, you know, is the, a destabilized male dominance at the root of mass shootings? Is this part of what is being put forth here? Or am I just doing, is, is that reading just too simplistic? It may be, you know. Well, maybe like just to, 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 follow up on Vanessa's point about Martine Perez's essay, she, there was some, I don't remember the exact quote, but there's something about like the child wishing, like, like some, some kind of pained wish in the wanting of the, the wishing for the father of, for an impossible presence. And the impossible presence, I don't think was in her essay is about the re- necessarily simply the real, or, or is not contiguous with a real father who's simply absent. I think the, she was trying to think about the symbolic function of the father, the way the father allows the child a place in society, names them or gives them uh, or helps them go into the world, right? Um, that, 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 that's what's kind of lacking. I have a quote actually from her, which might be uh, what you're referring to. She, she writes, the violence against those who cannot find a legitimate point of entry into their existence returns in the real as their boundless attacks against the spaces of the social link confirm that taking up a place in the world is foreclosed to them and outside their reach. Is that? Yeah. 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 I thought that was very, very moving. Um, And, uh, you know, sort of, and and animated a lot of, a lot of thoughts, um, you know, about sort of what is it, what what is blocking this legitimate point of entry into existence? Um, and uh, and I don't you know I don't know if you guys want to talk more about that. But in the beginning of the book, you, you know, your introduction, which is terrific, it's so clear and um, such a such a powerful statement um, from the both of you. And you actually come up with a word. Is this your word? With this thing? Yeah, they're shared word. <laughs> so, so, so let, let me let me set it up a little bit. So these these two write like you know Unbahagen, you know discontent is not, doesn't quite capture our current moment. It's something else other than we are discontented, and then they start to like you know sort of weave something together. And the next thing you know, I'm like, oh, they've invented a word. Tell us about the word you've invented. 
Well, I, th- I think, I mean, exactly what you just said, Umbahagen is just not doing it anymore. And I think, you know, recently moving to Sweden, now I live in a society that I can say is Umbahagen. Like now I understand what Umbahagen is because everybody here kind of has all of their social services in place, their healthcare is taken care of, their education is taken care of. Like to me, it's like paradise, you know, like oh, everything's taken care of. But everyone here is kind of depressed. You know, they're all like depressed and anxious and like not that happy. You know, so uh, so I see, I see, this is the Umbahagen that Freud is talking about, to have this society, you know, it all works perfectly well, but uh, everyone's kind of depressed. There's definitely this sense of malaise, but in the States, for sure, and I think globally as well, um, for the most part, this idea of Umbahagen and just being discontent or having a sense of malaise is not doing it anymore, because... um, we're just overwhelmed. It's con- we're constantly barraged with news, not even every hour, 24 hours a day. It's like every moment there's tweets, there's things popping up on our phone, notifications. It's like, I mean, I try so hard not to look at this, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people do, but still trying to be informed. But there's, there's no way out of it. I mean, it's just constant and everybody's exhausted. And I think we talk about, I guess it's in the introduction as well, like you have this constant sense of guilt. You have this constant sense of panic. What should I do? I should be doing more. Should I be protesting? Should I quit my job? Should I, is it enough? You know, I think a lot of people like just tweet and think, write things on social media and that gives them a little release feeling like they're doing something, you know? Um, and it's just, yeah, we needed to come up with something else. So, right. So, so we're in our, in like to follow that, which I think maybe doesn't need any following, but the, 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 the Umbahagen word like was a, is, is like a Freudian word about the cost and the failure of repression, right? So it's really the kind of word of psychoanalysis. And then we thought like, but a lot of even in some of the essays we talk about people like in, in the mass shootings and, or the video games, we're not really talking about psychoanalysis. We're talking about some more on the kind of narcissistic imaginary plane and stuff. And we're also we're also thinking about just anguish was the idea of angst and. <laughs> and, and also washed. And the reason we had washed was, I mean, if, we couldn't really put it in the title because people were like, what the hell, guys? What'd you do? But we, we had, well, the idea is like, on the one hand, it's we're awash in angst and in the constant forces, as Vanessa pointed out, of, of this kind of real demand of the other. But also, like, the idea of being good, like our new uh, Me Too, Time's Up, Black Lives, being politically correct, like we, we have to do the right thing all the time. And this doing the right thing is is another like unbearable say super egoic other demand that's just exhausting yeah yeah absolutely i was uh before we started the interview manya and i were talking a little bit and i have been you know as you know vanessa living between new york and rome and i thought what when i you know arrived in rome whatever last february for a month i thought oh, I have so many aches and pains in my body and I can't sleep and it must just be menopause and it's just like terrible and I'm falling apart. And within like 10 days, I was like, um, wait, uh, excuse me, where's my neck pain and why am I sleeping? You know, <laughs> but there was something about like cutting off from, particularly cutting off from America that um, helped me to understand that I'd made it through menopause not so badly. And uh, <laughs> I just had to get out of America in a constant state of like the feeling of like the worst of menopause is upon all of us, no matter how old we are, you know. So we're sweating, <laughs> our thoughts are racing, we can't form thoughts and we can't sleep, you know. So there, there, <laughs> there it is. Um, 
I wanted to ask you guys if you could help me to understand something. And I don't, you know, this is not to put you on the spot. It was a very complicated essay, this Tahiri essay. And it, uh, I, I was thinking it, it frightened me. It created such fear in me. And this idea of subreption, you know, of deliberate misrepresentation. Um, I found myself returning uh, to Adrian Rich. I was reading women in this essay that I've always loved, um, some notes on lying. And she's she's so great she says the liar fears the void the void is not something created by patriarchy racism or capitalism it will not fade away with any of them it's a part of every woman anyway i was like god bless audrey rich but but this essay um she the author is writing about an idea slave revolt morality and the university discourse in relationship to I, I don't know. Can you guys help me understand what is slave revolt morality and university discourse? If you if, if you understand it, or as you understand it, I'm coming to you. I'm, okay, that's. <laughs> I had I had Ali Reza on the on the rendering unconscious podcast, and I I basically asked him to talk more about the essay because um, it's one of those things that when I was reading it and editing it made perfect sense, but as I haven't really looked at this book in a year, I no, couldn't really like, tell it, you. It really like. It was a very, it's fine. It's fine. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I was like, this is such, is, is, is like the university discourse, the discourse of the trigger warning. Um, it's a slave revolt morality about like now, it, I was like, what, what is the, well, well, the university discourse and the master discourse are similar. The university discourse like holds, helps hold up the master discourse. So I think that's where he gets the slave revolt. Uh, <laughs> okay. From. Um, it was a very scary essay. I, it got to it. I, I, the, the way it ended, something about the serpent, and we're we're, we're just we're just screwed. Um. Anyway, it was. Oh, the uh, Nietzsche it, at the end. Yeah, yeah. The Nietzsche. Thank you. The, the Nietzsche serpent at the end. Right? Yeah, the Nietzsche at the end. I, I was reading it on a on the plane coming back from Thanksgiving. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like, this is gonna, this, this essay has really turned my head around. Um, I, another question sort of coming from a point of view of a person who, you know, sort of reads, reads the con like as an appetizer and then, you know, kind of, I kind of go someplace else. But um, I was, I found myself wondering, um, would, what would you say? Uh, do Lacanians understand destructive impulses as, "Quote unquote innate." How do how do Lacanians account for uh, destructivity? I, I don't I don't know that innate, innate is not really a Lacanian word. No, <laughs> no, 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 it's right, not. Right. It's it's my it's my okay, word. Yeah. Right, right. So so I think uh, I mean I don't I don't want to speak for Lacanians, right? But uh, so speak, speak as a Lacanian <laughs> or somebody who lived in France for a long time and listened to these people for many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I think that we think about the idea of the drive. And and the signifier making a mark on the body, and that that there, in a sense there's a kind of originary violence of the trauma of language, right? So that that is involved in like in in, in any in considering trauma, but destructivity would be like maybe on the side of if we want to talk about the death drive or the quote unquote the drive uh, as having no no necessary end, right? No necess- no no symbolic fiction that allows it a kind of rest. Okay. That's, that's how I would understand it. I mean, in kind of different terms, but it, that's, that certainly resonates. Um, and, you know, right. Lacan writes, we must bring out the subject's aggressiveness toward us, you know, in that, uh, essay on, uh, on aggressivity or an aggressiveness. And that made me think about, well, how do, how do we work with destructive aggression? 
you know, like to really talk a little bit here about technique, because I'm, you know, I think a lot about this in my practice. Certainly, I, you know, work with people who are psychotic and, and working, you know, as somebody who has modern training with the idea that one, you know, one attacks the mind so as to protect a needed object, but the aggression is turned inward, rather than outward. And I think a lot about technique for, um, you know, transforming that. And I think we probably all would agree that, you know, what, you know, what can't, what can be spoken need not be put into um, action. Um, but uh, what can't be spoken, you know, demands its day uh, in the, in the sun. So just really quickly, just to, to, to touch on something, because there's like so much in there, but like when you said it was to go back to Martine Foray's essay, right? She, like the violence in repetition. There's a kind of, she was saying there's like, you know, working with these kids, there was a kind of logic of the repetition. So what could look like a terrible acting, all these quote unquote acting out. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I hope I'm not being in, you know, evil by saying that a lot of analysts don't like acting out. They get very uncomfortable. Right. And Martin Ferre's point is that like, this is our work. Like the repetition in the acting out is say for some patients, the way they can sit, the only way, they can bring something to work, to, to, to light, to, to, you know, so that it's like our work, it's our job to work with that. And to, I mean, the Lacanian idea with technique is never answer in the mirror, you know, that the, the aggression invites aggression. And so the, the kind of non mirror, um, not like the, that you're not, the, the, the aggression is not met with the analyst aggression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just have to bear it. Right. To bear it. And what is like, what does bearing it look like? I'm trying to get a sense of uh, is, you know, bearing it is containing it, bearing it is just receiving it, accepting it like in a, let's say in a very, like in a, in a, you know, a negative transference that involves, you know, um, you're being told, you know, all kinds of terrible things about yourself. Um, you know, as, uh, what is the what is tech i'm so interested in techniques like what does the technique what does bearing it look like you need to not react to it you just need to not react to it because it, when you don't, don't react to it it becomes a, a work it becomes theirs for interpretation or it can become theirs for interpretation uh, but i mean maybe also um tracy to your point um like to take seriously this destructiveness and aggression are not the same in every patient. Right. So, so in a way it's, it's, it's taking, taking the word destructiveness or aggressivity as a universal, uh, as a, it may be, might be a mistake or maybe not the best way to proceed. So that, for example, patient X doing a certain kind of action is different than patient Y even doing the same action if that makes sense. So that, so there's not like one response that's a, you know, user friendly. It's more like, well, in this case, I've decided uh, I'm thinking uh, it's best to be quiet. And in this, in this case, maybe there's a, something I could say, or, or I could change the time of the appointment or you, you see what I mean? Um, so it's not, I don't think there's a, a one, a one answer to that. Um, but I, maybe I would just add one thing. When I worked in the hospital for Donna once, there was a patient he is kind of a lifetime uh, hospital patient. He he was a little bit autistic, but had a lot of uh, charm in some ways. And um, he, long story short, he liked coming to my art group that I did. And one day, um, 
when there was some kind of more advanced patients who, and one who was a writer in the hospital. And so I made the group that week on poetry and he didn't read well and it was very hard for him and he was very angry. So he saw me in the hallway and he kicked me. He, did, he kicked me. I mean, he really kicked me, you know? And he said, uh, and he said, while he was kicking me, he goes, I'm taking martial arts. <laughs> he just like gave me a real karate kick, you know? And then um, I didn't talk to him for like a week and, and I, and he, he apologized. Um, and in that case, you know, that like, I mean, just, um, and then he, he said to me, he goes, I was, and then he said, when I didn't talk to him, he said, I was upset. I know I shouldn't have kicked you. I was upset because I wasn't in the poetry group. And I said, I know it was, pro-, and I said, it was probably hard to say that it was, I said, it was probably very hard to say that. And he looked at me and said, yes, it was. So, I mean, that, that was the end of that. Right. But how do we bring the, I guess the question is like, how do we bring those things to analytic work to the other level where they can be said or thought or spoken? Right. Right. So, so, yeah. yeah. And often there's an enactment first. Yeah, I guess. Okay. And I think it just reminds me though, in general, I think that there needs to be more of an acknowledgement, um, of this, you know, ambivalence is is foundational for us as humans. Um, and I feel like there's not enough acknowledgement in general in society um, of, of our ambivalence towards the mother, towards the other. Um, yeah, I think the first step would be just acknowledging it more instead of pretending otherwise. Sure. Sure. And there is uh, such a reluctance. I mean, even in teaching this semester, I noticed students were like, well, I don't want to think of, um, you know, that that certain conditions create uh, violence. And I, I thought to myself, well, there's also what about the pleasure in violence, you know, and that people take great pleasure um, in their in their violent acts. We the urge to destroy. Um, I don't think it needs to be taught. Uh, for instance, um, but the reluctance even amongst analytic candidates at a place like CMPS, which is very, you know, much interested in um, aggressivity, destructive aggressivity and its transformation. Um, it's like, well, what would happen to us if we were to just like hop to the, as you say, the ambivalence, um, which includes our desire to, to construct and to, and to destroy, um, you know, we're, we contend with that all the time. Um, you know, what is, so I guess I have another question is just what would you, what would you say is, um, what do, what do Lacanians bring to the subject of violence to bring you back to speaking for Lacanians? But what, what do you think of as sort of the unique, um, perspectives that Lacanians have on violence? Cause the question is so it's, it's so the issue is so pressing. And uh, I think the audience would like to understand. Well, I think in the first place, just writing a book on violence uh, was important to us because it isn't something that's historically been talked about in psychoanalysis, you know, in recent decades, um, as violence is more of this acting out and uh, people talk more about aggression and speech. But um you know, if you go back to Freud, and that's why we quote Freud and the Einstein correspondence, Why War, in the introduction, uh, he does talk about violence. And, um, you know, he lived through one world war and the beginning of another. So I feel like um, that to us was really important. And it's really hard for me to say, 
um, what Lacanians think about it, because again, like we've said, they're so diverse. Um, but I think, again, it's this ability to bear it, acknowledge it, create space in which to explore it, um, and just create more of a dialogue or discourse around what's going on instead of feeling like things or certain topics or areas are foreclosed. I think that's in psychoanalysis in general, something that psychoanalysis uh, can bring to the table you know, clinically and in, in, in one-on-one, but also more as a societal discourse. And I think that's what Patricia Giovici touches upon uh, in the last chapter when she talks about her experience in Argentina and, and the war there and how psychoanalysis um, has become so prevalent in that environment. Maybe, maybe to add to that, um, because I also can't answer that question, but I could maybe also refer to two other essays in the book as well. Um, Vincent LaCore's uh, piece on Click and Destroy, the Clinic of Video Games. I mean, LaCore has worked uh, extensively with kids kind of quote-unquote addicted to video gaming. And I think led a conference on it in Paris a while ago, uh, which is why it made me ask him to give us a, a an essay on it. Just like, so working with these other, like that, that essay, and also, um, you know, Genevieve Morell's essay on Susan Stern and her, uh, like her experience, you know, with the weatherman and her, like being a modern terrorist, if you want, uh, and her, 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 her ideal, the ideal that she's kind of, um, embodying through her violent acts. You know, what's interesting, and also you know, Morel wrote a book on, uh, on, on, on terrorists who left like biographies that they autobiographies. And she wrote a book, uh, that I interviewed her on a while ago, um, about, about, uh, and each one of them really, it's, it's kind of reading their autobiographical writing and thinking about it psychoanalytically. And so what, what about the reason I mentioned those two essays is they, they're both like bringing psychoanalysis, like uh, into a, like a larger, a, to a, a larger way of thinking about it. You know, how can we use psychoanalytic principles to work with kids who don't want to talk to anybody and just want to sit in front of a, a video game all day. Right. How, how can we think about, terrorists as subjects uh, and to continue to do that and how psychoanalysis is p- uh, particularly well positioned to be able to do that. So in a way, like not only is the idea of like a clinical work that is kind of um, broaching or opening uh, different spaces in society, but also um, say bringing it for us to you know, read about it and think about it. And um, again, like bringing that to a more symbolic space share, shared, say in our book, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I actually, I think I read that interview that you did. It's very fascinating. It's fascinating the work that she um, that she did in reading these uh, those biographies. Thinking about um, Todd McGowan's essay, um, which I found very compelling. I always find him compelling. Um, for I just I love how his his mind works and his suggestion that um, we need to be reminded of death. Sacrifice is necessary. He writes. And, um, you know, terrorism, he turns it is sort of commonplace thinking on its head as, um, you know, that it's terrorism is not a response to deprivation. It's a response to some to too much, a too much stimulation. Um, I just I, I, 
just thought it was a terrific essay. Did you guys have uh, any thoughts come to mind about it? It's just, it, it just, it turned well, everything upside down for me in a wonderful way. Could you a quick response? Um, but what, it's great because he, you know, brings in Agamben and Foucault and the kind of reduction to bi, like biopower that we live in, right? So in a way, we need terrorism. Like it's, it's kind of like you know Al Pacino in um, Scarface. He's like, you need me. I'm the bad guy. So now you know who you are, right? Well, now it's not Al Pacino as the mob boss that we need. We need. So it's not the Unbehagen, right? We need the anguish. We need like another mass shooter in Las Vegas going up to his hotel room and shooting him. So it, it's in a way they're having this kind of social, there's a social need to be constantly reminded of death because in a way he associates it with kind of interesting with the failure of Eros, like, like, uh, like that we don't have, there's like no more sexuality and there's not an erotic realm, which is more in the Unbehagen realm, you know, and instead we have this bare life and death and we need, so it's almost like we, we need this constant state of attention, right? Which in a way we live in right now in our Trump world of the news yeah. every single day are exhausting. I'll never go through airport security <laughs> in the same way again. He describes at the end of the essay, it's like, um, you know, sort of being patted down, being touched, asking, can I touch you here? Can I touch you there? She'd go through security and that, you know, we don't need, what is he, is it McGowan who writes, we don't need, no, it's maybe Donna. We don't need security. We need reliability. Uh, Yeah. I thought that was very, very, very beautiful. Um, I know I'd I'd love to work with him. Is he still working? Where is he? (laughs) Weekend conference that I do. Ah, you're kidding. Yeah, he's. I, I really, I loved, I loved his See, way. In, of, in a way, security is like on the violence things, side. But, um, reliability is like the analytic side. Like every, you know, the yeah. idea of the stability of the, your sessions. You know what I mean? That you see this person. Right. Right. I'm still in the chair. I haven't left the chair. I'm still listening, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the session comes to an end and we resume tomorrow and I'll see you then, you know, that's, you know, it's very, very different experience than security. Um, you know, which is, uh, is, is frightening. I mean, the idea that one must, um, be made to be secure yeah, that's um, amazing. is, uh, yeah, he's amazing. He, and it also reminds yeah. me of, um, Todd Dean's paper, like the the reduction to biopower of Todd McGowan, but Todd Dean's paper talking about it as he's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst and talking about working in a clinic um, with uh, immigrants and how how people are treated, you know, again, in the hospital system. All It's all about filling out forms. It's all about... You know, it's not about subjectivity at all. And then there's this sort of danger on top of everything. You know, these people, the people that he worked with are from Bosnia. They had to flee because of war. And then they're being subjected to ICE and all these kinds of medical interrogations. And, you know, just how dehumanizing everything has become. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other day I went up um, to Hunter College School of Social Work and to present in a clinical three class on psychoanalysis. The students in social work are not um, exposed to any psychoanalytic thinking at this point. Um, And I thought about Todd Dean's essay that, you know, they're like, well, we have to deal with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we, you know, poor people can't really, you know, uh, they don't have time for anything psychoanalytic. And, um, you know, we really have to um, just get them, you know, sort of, you know, teach them cognitive behavioral therapy so that they're, you know, so that their lives are, are entirely devoted to something mechanistic and uh, in a constant state of, of 
you know, sort of doing, doing homework and the social and the social workers were like, well, psychoanalysis is, is maybe it's sort of racist, you know, like it's not really for, you know, for, and I thought, wow, I, I had the exact, I have the exact opposite thought um, that, you know, what could be more violent than having to always tell yourself that you're, you are somebody um, by looking in the mirror. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, Todd. And that I, reminds Todd, me too, because um, Judith um, Butler in her piece talks about, you know, the, the personal, uh, she talks about the psyche as this sort of like law enforcement judicial system of itself. But, you know, she says the personal is political. And I think that's what we're seeing a move towards in a lot of ways, because um, like in March, Manya and I are going to be presenting this book at the APA Division 39 conference. And the way that that conference is set up, it's it's much more about these kinds of social causes and uh, the personal being political than I've ever seen it before. I didn't, I, gosh, I don't even know. what when is What is the title of the conference? Uh, it's the American Psychological yeah, Association's yeah. Division of Psychoanalysis. It's called Reckoning Reckoning Foresight. And <laughs> like they're having uh, Marie Fanon, Franz Fanon's daughters, going to the keynotes. And um, I don't know, it looks like it's going to be really Oh, amazing. that sounds great. Actually, I didn't, I, yeah. somehow it slipped my, uh, slipped my awareness. Um, so what else? Uh, what else would you like the audience to know about uh, about the book and about, you know, sort of the arguments that are put forth? Um, here in well, I mean, maybe just to emphasize that idea that, um, like, that the violence is an elimination of the psyche, not just of a per- person. It's like the idea it's against the unconscious, right? It's against the the conflict, the kind of internal conflict that it's our job to live with, right? It's almost like it's against the unbehagen, if you want. Maybe you could say something like that. Like against the, the Unbehagen as the as the as a as a position of the subject. Like I mean, how many patients do you have who want to come in? They come into your office because they want certainty, right? They're they're there. They want you to tell. Like they come with a demand for like someone to tell them about what their life is supposed to be, right? Um, like so, somehow we've set up uh, a culture of like I don't know high capitalism, neoliberalism, but a, a culture of demand where we're supposed to have an answer, you know? Right. I'm here to live my best life ever. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah, and then there's the other side of that where I remember having an analysis come in once and being like, well, I have the guy I want and I'm getting married. I'm in New York and I have the job I want, my dream job and my dream car and my dream house and my dream guy. And I'm still unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. As, right, as if unhappiness is not also a part of life. Um, Although yeah. when, when, when it was funny, I had a thought that I, I forgot to mention when Vanessa was describing our anguish word and she was like, well, you know, people in, in Sweden, were, they're unhappy. And I was like, wow. And, uh, and I was thinking, and I, I, thought the, I thought you were going to follow that Vanessa with, okay, and like in America, they're unbelievably miserable, exhausted, and they're <laughs> super happy. <laughs> oh yes. I mean, everybody yeah. forgets that we're not entitled to happiness in the in the in the, in the Declaration of Independence, right? Or the Constitution, or finding right. documents. It's just the pursuit, right? Right. And everyone seems right. to ignore that. You know? Yeah, right. The, we do forget the pursuit idea. It's something that that has to be uh, addressed and worked on, and you know, and it's and it's fleeting. Um, yeah, and so. So I think I was just in closing. Like I think we wanted to open the discussion more. 
because it, it's, I think we both felt so strongly it's something we should continue to have. And at least opening the discussion in a book is just one way of like putting it more on the table um, without, uh, you know, without say social ideas of, or juridical ideas of what violence is. You know, mm-hmm. More and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we don't see psychoanalysis linked with violence, right? Like the two words together really are like, I was like, oh, wow. You know, there's, there's, we, we read about, you know, aggress- aggressiveness, aggressivity, destruction, but, but I was like, oh, violence here, here, now they've done it. Just the title in and of itself. I've been like on the train with it and people are like, oh, what's that book about? That's <laughs> like, right. Violence. What did the, what does the analyst have to say about it? Um. Vanessa, anything else that you would like to say, you know, in closing um, regarding the book, the impact you'd like it to have, anything else? Um, no, I mean, I think that's that's it. And, I mean, this is something, like I said, we've been working on on and off since, yeah, like 2011, 2012, talking about. And I'm glad that, you know, this book came to fruition as a result of all these kinds of conversations and different meetings and conferences and work together. And um, yeah, I just hope that it helps to continue to open up conversation about these issues because I really feel that psychoanalysis, uh, the psychoanalytic perspectives um, have a lot to contribute to kind of the current state of where we find ourselves. And maybe also in closing that it's such a collaborative book uh, so many people were involved, and it was really fun to work with Vanessa. And uh, maybe the, it's also this idea of collaboration in the face of our what's going on that um, you know gives us some you know I don't want to say but like I hope and uh, looking forward to going forward, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's what that's what Freud said in the Why Wars that the that the you know you can't if there's a tyrant or a violent person who's kind of taken everything over by bullying, the way to kind of combat that is by a uh, community. We tried to yeah. make yeah. And it's, it's very, it's really clear. I'm, and I have a feeling that if I teach um, narcissism and aggression again, I will take uh, one or two essays um, from the book because I think they'd be very fit very well into this class. And it's a really wonderful contribution um, to our thinking. Yeah. So thank you both for, um, for your work um, and your ongoing work. And um, to all the listeners out there, um, this is Tracy Morgan with Vanessa Sinclair and Manya Steinkohler. And for now, we're going to say Arrivederci. Arrivederci. Hello. <laughs>